that we want and desire of Him, asking for the needs of the church itself throughout the world. Will you pray with me? Our Heavenly Father, we approach Your marvelous light again. We thank You, O Lord, for Your grace that has sent Christ to us to minister and witness to our hearts and souls. We now, O Lord, with great longing in Your Spirit, offer up many prayers and petitions to You. We pray, O Lord, for our civil government. As frustrated as we can be with it at times, we know, O Lord, that we are called according to Scripture to pray for it. And so we pray, O Lord, for our federal government. We think of the current presidency and the administration therein. Think of Mr. Biden, Mrs. Harris, the admin. We pray, O Lord, that you would use this administration um, for peace. We pray, O Lord, in our uncertain times that this administration would be characterized by that peace. We pray, O Lord, that you would soften the hearts of those who are in our highest uh, institutions within this country for the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. We pray for Mr. Biden that you'd give him wisdom to govern our country well. We pray that his decisions would reflect the moral law that you have written on his heart. And we pray, O Lord, that you would give him new eyes to see, a new heart, and new ears to hear, and that he may be a public minister in our public domain. We pray also, O Lord, for the times that he errs, as he often will do. We pray that you would convict him of that, and not only that, that you would restrain his power and authority when he acts against your word. We pray, O Lord, for all who are in government. We pray that you would use them well for our peace, for our prosperity, and for your glory. We also pray, O Lord, for the gospel throughout the world. We have some missionaries that serve in Bangladesh, and we pray, O Lord, that the gospel would continue to go forth there. We pray that those uh, lost people, through the ministry of the gospel, would come to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. We pray for the people of Bangladesh, that you would soften their hearts now to the end of your glory as they profess Christ to their brothers and sisters. We pray, O Lord, that you use the missionaries there, as dangerous as it could be at times, that you would protect them, that you would remind them of your sufficiency and care for them, and that, O Lord, you would give them fruit, fruit of the work that you've instilled within them in that country. We pray, O Lord, for the gospel to go forth there. And we pray, O Lord, for the fruit of the gospel in that country to be a legalization of the faith there, but also great revival and prosperity of the church there as well. Give the believers that are in this country great courage to maintain their steadfast love for you as you maintain it for them. Be with the gospel as it goes forth there. But we also pray, O Lord, for those who are lost. We think of those who are lost within our own community, whether that be Troy or Edwardsville or the greater Edwardsville area. We pray, O Lord, for our neighbors, for our local officials, for our local teachers, all, O Lord, who do not know your name as Savior. We pray, O Lord, that you would soften their hearts as well, that whether they be from Bangladesh or from our own hometown, that you would create revival within our midst, that we would see conversion that we would see profession, that we would see true repentance from our neighbors. Use us, O Lord, 
as believers, to bear witness to Christ in our neighborhoods and communities. Use us, O Lord, to be a light uh, uh, that stands upon a hill, that is salt to the earth, even in our own communities. Instill within us boldness for Christ and the gospel that He has given to us. We also pray, O Lord, for our own ministry here. We pray for our sanctification, our growth in grace and holiness. We pray for our educational ministry particularly. We think of our Sunday schools, our catechisms, our various events. We pray for the teachers that oversee them and the speakers that come to speak before us. We pray, O Lord, that we would be a people that grow in grace and truth. And we pray that our educational ministry reflects that, that even the smallest among us would profess Christ early on, knowing the true Christ as it is taught within their church and within their Sunday schools. We pray, O Lord, that the catechism that we memorize and hide in our hearts would be a catechism that we don't only know within our youth, but something that we can profess throughout our lives. True truth. O Lord, in the Lord Jesus Christ. Be with us in our educational ministry. Be with the teachers that labor week in and week out for our little ones. And be with the adult teachers that teach us the truth from the Scripture. We pray also, O Lord, for our congregational meeting coming up. We pray for Mr. Rogers, Mr. Peterson, and Mr. Walden, that as they come before us and as their names are before us, that you would bless them and their families. Let your will be done, O Lord, in this meeting, but also prepare our hearts to receive the work, a reminder of the work that has happened throughout this year. Bless this congregation, not only in its past, but also, O Lord, as we look towards its future. And be with all of those in our congregation, O Lord, who are downcast, who are hurting, who are experiencing a melancholy nature, even as they gather to worship you. Send us your countenance. Let us gaze upon it. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Open your Bibles with me to Philippians chapter 1. Philippians 1. Last week we discussed uh, Paul's imprisonment in Rome and how in many ways he was like a Trojan horse entering the city against all odds, seeing the gospel advance there quite thoroughly in his own quarters in prison, but also through the guard and throughout the city itself. What we'll see this week is that Paul, because of the work of God in his own life and in the lives of those around him, is a request for continued support, for his ministry was not done. But in the midst of that request, or in the midst of that need, today we hear of Paul's dilemma. You know it all too well, quite simply. You probably memorized this verse and have known it for quite some time. To live is Christ, and to die is gain. Here now from Philippians chapter 1, we'll be picking up in the second half of verse 18. Will you stand with me? Yes, and I will rejoice, for I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance, as it is for my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage, not all, not Now, as always, Christ will be honored in my body, 
whether in life or by death. For me to live is Christ, to die is gain. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet, though, yet which shall I choose? I cannot tell. I am hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with all joy for your progress and joy in the faith, so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of the Lord stands forever. May be seated. My family is deathly afraid of death. My, growing up as a boy, one thing that was never discussed in my home was death. We hated death. And I remember as a young boy, my own grandma's death most poignantly, most personally. And it was because it was the first death I'd ever experienced. I was a grandma's boy as a, as a child. I went with my grandma everywhere. I loved my grandma deeply. I remember many nights spending in, in her home. She had a massive 65-gallon fish tank that we would, we would sit under. And on her nice old CRT TV, we'd play games like Pac-Man and others on the Atari. We, I was close to my grandma. I loved her. But one of the nicknames that my grandma got from even the earliest memories was that she was a cat with nine lives. My grandma was on the brink of death so often, yet it was such an impossibility for my family. I remember when she had stage four cervical cancer. I was just four or five years old, and I would go with her to every doctor's visit. My earliest memories were in the doctor's office with my grandma, and she survived. Uh, She survived that cancer with some experimental treatment. But throughout her life, she was often near death. Remember a, fa- a near fatal car accident when I was in my early elementary years, in which the doctor said, "If we don't operate, she'll surely die. But if we do operate, there's a less than 25 percent chance she'll live." And yet she lived. My grandma was a fighter, and she would not let death. She kept death at its door until it was, but a couple of years later, where those nine lives would finally run out. And I remember grappling with death for the first time, something my family had never discussed, something to this day my family rarely sees as a possibility. We hate death. We hated death. And I marvel then as I look at Paul's text before us today because I admire his dilemma. To live is Christ and to die is gain. In the Edberg household, that is not a dilemma. And maybe it's not a dilemma here for you, but it's not a morbid thought that Paul is having. He's, if you look at his life as he's imprisoned, as he's dealing with the difficulties, you can begin to perhaps empathize with the apostle. Is it better to be shackled in prison, continuing the work of the gospel here, or is it better to die and be with Christ in glory forever? Paul, in this passage, seems to think the latter. It's great to die to join Christ. On paper, both are great options, but today maybe you're like Pilgrim in Pilgrim's Progress as he sees death and has to cross that river of death to the celestial city, he begins to drown 
in insecurity. He wonders if he's saved. He wonders if he will be sent back to the city of destruction. Maybe you're like Christian today, and there's no dilemma for you at all. You'd rather live to Christ than die for gain. And for you here today, we have a simple remedy found in Paul's passage. When you begin to fear death itself, find confidence that God will deliver you. When you begin to fear death itself, find confidence that God will deliver you. We see this in three very simple ways throughout this short passage. At first is that God will deliver you by showing you your vindication. We see this in Paul's own ministry in verse 19. For I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, that this will turn out for my deliverance. We see as Paul opens that, that he will be delivered, and in that deliverance there is vindication. He'll be approved of. But what does deliverance mean to Paul? We know the idea and, and uh, the category of this as Christians of what it means to deliver. But what does Paul mean by delivered? We know that it means to be saved from harm, that it means to be rescued from your captor. You'd probably go back to the Old Testament and maybe later this year we'll learn from the book of Exodus to be delivered meant from the hand of Egypt itself, from those captors that kept the Israelites, that deprived them in some ways, that killed their firstborns, to be saved by God, to be led out of that land. But we also see it further on as Israelites are exiled in the prophets. The Babylonians would become their captors, and they would long for that Old Testament exodus deliverance. They would long to be delivered again. It, this, this, this forwards itself all the way into the New Testament itself. I would argue that Jesus' own disciples had that sort of deliverance in mind as they were his disciples. Who was their captor? It was Rome. They knew of the various trials and tribulations of trying to throw off the Roman overlords. And the disciples themselves, thinking earthly-minded thoughts, thought that the Christ that would come would deliver them from Rome. You are reminded as they debate who will sit at the left and right hand of Jesus in the Gospels. Why are they debating it? It's because they think their Jesus will deliver them from Rome. But Paul doesn't make the same mistake in this passage. He's not thinking of mere physical deliverance on this earth. What will bring him true and ultimate vindication, whether he lives or dies by the Roman hand, is a spiritual deliverance. The word here for deliverance is quite different than you'd probably expect. It is that one word that you maybe know in the Greek, soterion. Soteriology, the study of salvation, as I learned in seminary. What does this mean? It means that God will bring Paul salvation. He will bring him deliverance. Maybe not from his physical toils and pains, but ultimate deliverance, ultimate vindication. As we heard a few weeks ago that Paul will be before uh, Nero as he is judged by that great king and God is his witness. He will vindicate the apostles' ministry. And in that, in verse 20, we see that the shame, there will be no shame for Paul. It's where the vindication becomes most intimate. 
as it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. Paul eagerly expects that the Lord will come through for you. Eager like a child as they see their father come home from work. Eager like a dog who's ready to go out to play. Eager like you are when you're about to go on vacation for a week at the beach in the summer. Finally, you get a time away from work, from worldly miseries and troubles. You're eager about it. You're eager about the anticipation of what is to come next. Paul is eager and hopeful that he will not be shamed by his God, but rather that he will be vindicated. This vindication, this promise of vindication, this promise that God will make all things right gives Paul courage now. When we are tempted to fear death, we are needing a reminder of God's promised vindication, of his promised salvation, the reminder that we will not be put to shame. It's a comfort that gives us courage to go on and on. Confidence Paul has because of what the Lord promises him here. We're reminded in Revelation chapter 21 of the great picture of what awaits Paul in death. It says, And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain any more, for the former things have passed away. This is the promised salvation that God promises to Paul and to you. He promises that he will deliver you. No matter what ails you today, no matter what ails you tomorrow, in death there is deliverance. There is deliverance. And so as we think about death this morning, whether it be at the table or our own death, we are reminded that in death we find deliverance. It's meant to be a comfort for both Christian in the progress, but also in our own lives here today. And so when you begin to fear death itself, find confidence in God's deliverance. We see that there will be vindication, but in the meat of the passage, in verse 21 to 24, we see that there is also victory. Not only will you be made right, not only will you have salvation, but you will also find victory. Your favorite verse, to live is Christ and to die is gain, a proverb in probably every one of your homes. You've known that verse from the very smallest of your age. You know that verse well. But what does it mean for Paul? It means that there is no defeat. Whether he lives or dies, God will be glorified and he will find glory in him. There's only triumph for Paul. Is there sorrow? Yes. Paul is probably in pain. Is there setbacks? Yes. But there is also triumph. There is victory. There is no defeat for the believer. Even when the circumstances in our world around us seem to scream defeat, there is victory. And this is the statement that causes Paul his greatest dilemma. He contemplates for the reader in Philippi, what is better? What is better, to live, 
to die? What is more desirable? They both seem like good options. If I die, I will join Christ in glory forever. I will be reminded of Revelation chapter 21, where there will be no more tears, no more sorrow, no more pain. But if I live, I can continue to glorify God by the expansion of the church here on this earth. They both seem like good opportunities. Paul, to his own humanity, has a preference. He wants to die. (laughs) He wants to die. Because far better would it be to be in a world without pain, suffering, and sin than to continue in prison where he currently is. I don't want to jump the gun into the third point, but you see that's not where his heart ultimately falls upon. But let's further think through the dilemma. To live is Christ. What, what does it mean to live is Christ? Philippians tw- verse 24 says, but to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. As I referenced just a moment ago, remaining is a good asset for the church, whether it be the apostle or you. If you're a faithful believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, it is an asset for the church to have you within its body. One of my uh, elder mentors, not a pastor, as I was reflecting upon the ministry of a church, I once asked him, well, how can we turn this ship around? And he jovially said to me, nothing five funerals won't solve. I always kept that close to my heart. The, the funny thing about such a statement is that he's been waiting for those five funerals for decades. There was hurt in the church, but it shouldn't be that way. For the church to live as Christ, it is to be an asset, to be a believer found within the church, not only as we serve one another, but as we continue the witness of Christ throughout the world, as we have obligations as believers. Paul gives us his obligation, that's also ours in Galatians. I've been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life that I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. Paul's life, as he continues to live, is to the purpose of the glory of God itself. He desires to live, not for his own benefit, but for God's glory. But let's also look at what it means to die for Christ. Paul says, I am pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and to be with Christ because that is far better. Paul sees death as a reward for all of his work because he knows what awaits him at death. When he dies, whether it is uh, uh, through the hand of Nero or of old age, he is reminded of the great promise of God himself to him that he not only will be vindicated, but that he will be with God forever. Eden, back in Genesis, will be restored. His experience after death, his post-mortem, will be too perfect even for the Sistine Chapel to depict. It will be greater than even the apocalyptic words of John that we heard just a few minutes ago. The vivid imagery of a tearless place, a sorrowless place, a perfect place for God's people. For Paul, death would be sweet be sweet. There'd be no more prisons, no more discord, no more letters to pesky churches that don't heed his warnings, no more hard labors 
No more shackles, no more cultural resistance, no more suffering, no more pain, hurt, or exhaustion. No more tears for the church that would often go astray. We share many of those, don't we, for the church? We can add a few. No more family drama. No more arguments in the home. No more disobedient kids. No more non-understanding parents. No more abuse. No more injustice. No more sin. When you put death in this perspective, you see why it is tantalizing to the apostle. Because what he awaits in glory is almost unfathomable to the human mind. Complete peace. A world without sin. When I think of death in these terms, I see why Paul finds it preferable. It's what I want. I'm reminded that I'll have much better sleep in heaven. I won't wake up three times in one night. Babies will sleep thoroughly and well, I'm assured, in the new heavens and the new earth. It's something to look forward to. But even in the midst of that great promise, Paul has a greater goal. What is Paul's goal? How does Paul discern and choose between these four verses, to live or die? Well, I think the question he asks himself is, which would bring God's name greater glory? Would it be me in the heavenly courts declaring God's glory for all of eternity before him? Would that be more glorious to God? Or would it be that I continue my labors and ministries on this earth? And near the end, and in the third point, as we'll see in a few minutes, he chooses the latter. Though he desires heaven more than any man, he knows that his work is not done here. It kind of reminds me, I don't know if you, you're ever hit with the dilemmas, it reminds me of the great story between Calvin and Pharrell. I don't know if you know much about John Calvin. He is the father of Presbyterianism and the Reformed faith. He is a Protestant reformer. But he did not want to be a Protestant reformer. Believe it or not, Calvin in his early ministry had quite the dilemma. He had been trained at one of the greatest institutions on earth at that time. He had one of the best educations in law. He's also one of the most gifted thinkers of that time. So the Lord gave him a double portion, a D.A. Carson kind of portion of intellect, intelligence, and giftedness. But Calvin, after fleeing Paris for his life from Louis, wanted to go into hiding and live a scholar's life. He wanted nothing more than to go to Strasbourg and write for the rest of his life. That's all he wanted to do. And unfortunately for Calvin's own selfish desires, on his way to Strasbourg, he takes a brief detour to Geneva. And this is where Pharrell gets him. Pharrell understands in order to solidify the Reformation in Geneva, he needs Calvin, this true prodigy, true genius, a man that can lead the church in Geneva to Reformation. And Calvin is reluctant. Should I stay here and deal with, with this mess of a reformation, or shall I go to Strasbourg and do what I truly desire and want to do? He has a dilemma before him, but one of my favorite stories about Pharrell 
is when Calvin shares that exact sentiment with Pharrell. Pharrell, with his red beard and fiery eyes, jumps on the table, sends the dishes flying in the room, and he says these words to Calvin, you are following your own wishes, and I declare, it's so bold, in the name of God Almighty, that if you do not assist us in the work of the Lord here, the Lord will punish you himself for seeking your own interest instead of his. Would Calvin stay or go? Well, Calvin felt that that was divine intervention. What would be better for the church? To be a recluse or to continue the work of reformation in Geneva? He chooses Geneva because of a fiery Pharrell, and we would serve him well until the point of death. There's great victory for those who live in Christ, but that's why we live. The purpose of those who to live is Christ and to die is gain. To live means to offer your entire self to Christ despite your personal preferences, whether that to be to die with Him and be with Him, or to go to Strasbourg to be a recluse. Our call is to give glory to God with all that we are. And in that, there is victory. Whether we live or die, there is victory found there. There's this world that we live in communicates death, I believe, in a non-victorious way. I think that's why the Edinburgh clans hate death. Because in death to our world, there is only defeat. There's only loss. There is no gain. There's no victory. And so as believers, as a witness to Christ, even as Providence Presbyterian Church, an encouragement and reminder to us is that we, as Christ's people on earth, can show the world what death in victory looks like. You can be victorious, and in that victory, you offer the world a taste of what for those who Christ have. I've seen it many, many times before of great believers longing for death in their old age, longing to be with Jesus for eternity. I'm ready to go. And when I saw that as a young boy, I often thought maybe I need to know a little more about death family hasn't talked about it, but seeing aged believers ready to die is one of the greatest blessings for any human soul. When you begin to fear death, find confidence in God's deliverance. You'll see vindication. You'll see victory. I couldn't think of another V, so you will see also progress. No synonyms for progress with a V. Convinced of this, Paul says in verse 25, I know that I will remain and continue with you all, for your progress and joy in the faith, so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. Paul concludes that he will stay on earth and live. It's quite interesting that Paul thinks that he has this liberty to choose. After all, he's in prison. Nero has the opportunity to kill him at any moment. And yet Paul, with some confidence, says, I'm convinced as we defined that word last week, as convinced as this chair will hold me, Paul is convinced that he will remain to continue with you all. Not only to continue, but to come to see you again. 
I am convinced not only that I will live, but I will, I will not escape prison, but I will be released from prison, and I will join you once more. You will see my face again. What an interesting promise. I would often wondered, I often wish I could be in the mind of Paul here. <laughs> what, why do you have this confidence? How do you have this confidence? I don't know. But Paul and him staying alive for the ministry of the church sees that there is a promise for progress. And in that progress, joy. Even if that progress seems to be only millimeters every year, we often talked with a great uh, theologian friend in the PCA and talking about growth in grace, sanctification, how, how we progress in the Lord Jesus Christ. And he often said, well, there's progress every year, but some years you seem to only make centimeters some years you seem to strive for feet, and others you seem to move just a little at all. But there is progress. There is progress for the ministry. There is progress for Paul, even as he is in prison. There is progress for the Philippians. There is progress for you and me as we continue in the Lord's grace. One of my favorite historical figures is Charles Simeon. This is a historical sermon. You get a lot of stories in history. But Charles Simeon was an English evangelical clergyman in the 18th and 19th century. He is one of my favorite Anglicans. And why I like Charles Simeon is that the church that he took, Holy Trinity Church in Cambridge, did not receive him well. He had just finished his schooling at Cambridge. He was ready. He was right off the old block, ready to go into ministry. And this was the church that was available for him. And they hated him from the get-go. They did not want an evangelical in their pulpit. And so back in those days, they had church wardens. These church wardens, the only reason I know what a church warden is, they have a pipe that's called a church warden, and I guess that's what they smoked out of. But these church wardens had keys to the building. And these church wardens not only unlocked the church, but they would unlock pews. Everyone had their own assigned seating. You pay a pew, you get a pew. And that door would remain locked until the warden would unlock it and let you in. Well, for our friend Charles, the church wardens knew everyone hated him. They hated him. And so they never unlocked the church on Sunday. For years. This isn't just one-off experience where we're going to show him and he's going to go. For years, Holy Trinity Church met right outside the church for worship because they hated their pastor. But even after that, you know, after five years of that, they began to open the doors, but kept the pews locked. Slow progress for any church. In the evening, the church had the liberty to choose who would be their evening preacher. And you can guess, they always chose his assistant pastor. They never chose him. They never wanted him. They had to put up with him because that's where he was commissioned to serve. He was often rejected. On the way home from church, the kids would throw fruit at him, tomatoes. He was reviled by the church. He would serve that church for 30 years. <laughs> um, and I, I remember reading some of his letters to friends. One of his friends famously asked him, why have you stayed at this congregation? The first 12 years were the worst. They got a little better, but they never got great. Why have you stayed for 30 years? He famously proclaimed one of my favorite quotes. 
what is a little suffering for the sake of Christ? What is a little suffering for the sake of Christ? A minister who's had fruit thrown at him, locked out of his church, despised and made a mockery in the community around him as the hated pastor of the community. There was little love. This, these stories help me persevere in ministry, <laughs> as you'd imagine. I'm like, well, at least I'm not Charles Simeon. But at the end of his life, as he retired and died, there was a new church that was left. It was an evangelical church, no longer devoted to the mainline teachings, questioning the divinity of Christ, questioning the true faith. They had changed through 30 years of tireless ministry from a minister who should, by all intents of human purposes, gave up on him and left. But he saw the work before him and was called by God to do that work. Even Charles Simeon saw progress in the gospel. As Paul did, so did Simeon. He saw an evangelical church flourish even as they reviled him and had much difficulty with him. In other words, if Holy Trinity could be reformed, so could we. We can see progress. If a church that Simeon labored for so long could finally see the true faith of the Lord Jesus Christ. So can we see that progress too within our own body? Certainly we're not like 18th, 19th century Holy Trinity. We presuppose a lot of the doctrine that Simeon fought hard to achieve, but the promise is still there. Even when we seem to sputter a little, we see progress. Some years it might be mere inches and centimeters, Others, it might be great, but no matter the progress, there is joy and worth of rejoicing in. Back to verse 18b, for this I rejoice. For whether I live or die, I will see progress for the church on this earth. As we approach the table this morning, we are reminded of the great victory that comes in the Lord Jesus Christ that through the death of the Son, we might have life. And in that life, we have the great promise and taste and privilege of heaven even today. As we approach this table, we have a taste of what Paul longs for in death. We have a taste of Christ himself, a promised feast for all who come before him today. At this day, whether you are beaten or battered by the world, you are an honored guest. There's a great opportunity to join Paul and say to live as Christ and to die as gain. For at this table, we have a taste of eternity. Let's close in prayer. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for your grace that we, even as we might fear death, can be reminded of the great deliverance you promise. And we, as your people, can be reminded of the verse of, O death, where is your sting? For those in Christ will be delivered. We thank you for that truth. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.